Hi, I'm Alexandra Roxo, your host of the Holy Fuck podcast. I've created this podcast because I want to explore how the mystical touches us in our everyday lives, how the sacred and profane move together like two sides of the same coin. I found that in modern spirituality, we often separate the sacred and the profane. We look at certain things as being holy and good and others as being bad. And I've actually found that the most magical part of life is finding the divinity, the healing, and the transformation in all of it. In this podcast, you can expect to hear stories from people on all sorts of walks of life. You'll hear from a doctor, a sex worker, a poet, a motivational speaker, an activist, a mother, a birth doula, and all sorts of other people who are walking on an embodied path of healing and transformation as a soul awakening this lifetime. Each one of our guests will be sharing their mystical and numinous and spiritual awakenings, how the sacred has touched their lives and the profane too how they have explored life through sex, drugs, birthing, meditation, prayer, experiencing death and life, and all sorts of different elements that God, Goddess Divine, speaks to us through. If you found that you're also a rebel mystic who doesn't just fit into the simple ideas of good and bad, of spirituality, but sees the nuance that life has to offer us, then I hope you find a home with me here in this podcast. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. On today's podcast, I have Alexander Ebert, Alex Ebert. On Instagram, he goes by Bad Guru, but you probably know him from the band Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. If you don't know who that is, well, you probably have heard the song that goes, Home is wherever I'm with you. Uh, yeah, you know that song? Yeah, you probably heard it. Anyway, this guy's awesome. He's bringing so many incredible philosophical conversations into the space of new ageism and wellness and, well, many things. This conversation gets deep. It's dense at times, but it also goes far out into space, into the air. And of course, I bring it back down into the body. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know. This is definitely something that I've been thinking about and pondering for a while. Some of the ideas that we talk about together. And um, yeah, I'm excited to hear how they sit with you too. So enjoy. Okay, so lovely to meet you and have you with us here today on my podcast called Holy Fuck, where we talk about all things sacred and profane and mystical and weird and, you know, how we find ourselves today in these times in the midst of it all. So when I heard you speaking on another podcast, I was really drawn to um, some of the ideas and discourse that you've been participating in publicly. And I'm so grateful to have you here today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been really fun doing a fairly starved on the uh, rock and roll circuit of uh, a deep conversation. Um, so it's nice to, um, yeah, to engage. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to start by just, if you wouldn't mind introducing um, yourself, tell us a little bit about you. Obviously we can read about you from the internet, but it's fun to hear from your own um, heart, voice, all of it. I'm an amazing guy. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, um, it's funny, you know, like I, I'm doing a somatic therapy right now. Um, 
age three, this is something most people don't remember. I was in therapy starting at about age three or four um, because um, I think the first thing was uh, my, my mom got reports that I was hitting kids at the park. And so she put me, she put me in therapy and my dad's a therapist. So I was like, okay, we'll just put him in early therapy. And then she found out that the nanny was hitting me and that I had probably been, you know, transposing that. Then I go into kindergarten and I remember they brought in this big jungle gym. It was a new jungle gym made out of tires. And they're like, okay, kids, they lined us all up. I really remember it very vividly. We got a new jungle gym. But before anyone uses it, we have to give you guys sort of the ground rules for how to um, how to not hurt yourself. And they go start going into the rules. And I remember just standing up and going to where the teachers were and facing the class myself and going, no, 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 no. This is how you use it. And then just going up to the jungle gym and starting to climb it. And then I got in trouble and my mom, as a sort of tactic, again, offered, okay, well, we'll put him in therapy. Don't kick him out of this school. We'll put him in therapy again. So then again, starting at about age five, I'm in therapy. And then I'm in therapy basically pretty consistently as this bargaining token that my mom had with these various like private schools. <laughs> so I was just in therapy. So at age 19, my dad's a therapist and he was, you know, that's a whole other story. So I stop all that because I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm done with that. And, um, and then just recently in the last three months, I start doing somatic therapy, essentially where the body, your body is the therapist and just like breathe into yourself and, feel what's tight, breathe into that. And if any associated memories pop up, you start breathing into those and whatever, you let your body leave. And um, I guess I bring that all up to say that um, what I've been understanding about myself lately, so this is my way of saying this is who I am right now. When I said I'm an amazing person, I was actually being earnest in the sense that I've always felt like a bad person. I've always felt like some someone who had to be fixed oh you're doing this you got to go to this person you're doing this you got to go to the therapist you, you got to go here oh you can't like you know uh you can't read you have adhd you, you have uh you know these various problems that my mother was constantly sending me off to and i didn't really realize that i just felt like a bad person but about at the age of 13 i now, looking back, I understand what I was doing. I was sort of recuperating that badness into a positivity, uh, which you see with any degraded group. Um, you take, you know, the word that was most hurled at you with the most vitriol and you invert it to become sort of this PowerPoint. And um, and so I became the class clown. I became the fuck up and I owned that. Um all, all, uh, and that's still baked into who I am. And so in some sense, I'm grateful for all that. But when I said, I'm a good person, that's actually me being like, no, I'm not a bad person. Yeah. But I'm only recently realizing that, you know? So yeah. um, that's a little tidbit about yeah. me and where I'm at right now. Yeah. I love that. And I love it because your Instagram uh, handle is bad guru. So, you know, like uh, like you just said, uh -huh. we, we kind of take yeah. that thing and we run with it, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And it's sort of like 
like you, I don't know if you said the word baked, but it's sort of baked into our identity or what we're maybe like kind of crunching through in our lives, like making sense of, like you're not like good guru or kind guru. <laughs> no, God, no. <laughs> and I wrote a book called Fuck Like a Goddess, you know, and I was called a slut and a whore, like mm. starting when I was like 10, even though I wasn't having sex with anyone. I was just like half Brazilian living in Georgia. But so that became a big part of my sort of own reckoning was mm. like, wait a minute, I must be oh, a slut. Like I must be, that's what everyone's calling me whenever. Um, and it's, you know, so, so uh, how does that kind of, cross mm. that we bear become like i don't want to it sounds very trite to be like okay we turn that into our gifts you know like and and mm. we can see that kind of languaging all over sort of the new age kind of um space but so how do you feel about that like what with the story you just told the anecdote you just told about taking that badness and turning it into something how do you see that that kind of relates to where we are right now um so the other night, my daughter, uh, one of my favorite conversations so far with, with her, um, she was she was upset about something. She was lying in bed and I, I was like, you know, hey, what's up? And she's like, why do bad things happen? Like, that's a great question. Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? What what is this whole life then? And and why do bad things happen? Why do we have to put up with them? You know, this is a kid that's new to the world and just curious as to why living is tough. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of answers to that. Um, you know, uh, some of them are, you know, biological answers, scientific answers. There are emotional answers and almost all of them have to do with fitness. Almost all of them have to do with um, survival and fitness and overcoming and that the knife is only sharpened against a wedding stone, you know, and, and um, that's just sort of the way it is. And we don't really know why, except that for some reason, apparently, we're here to advance on some level, emotionally, um, obviously technologically, which I wish in some ways we would just stop that. But we're certainly here to continue to try to solve things. And for whatever reason, the things keep arriving that need to be solved. And, um, and you know, and, and that said, sometimes we invent things to solve, like, I grew up upper middle class. I intentionally became a heroin addict so that I could really live um, because I, I felt like I just had no semblance of um, what it was even like to really have to try and struggle and live. And for some reason in my 18 year old mind, that was the most important thing to me was to be, be able to feel like I was, um, really here on earth struggling and just felt like I wasn't living a life if I hadn't done that. And for whatever reason, um, that's where I was at. And so I sort of manufactured that hardship for myself. 
And then it ended up becoming a real actual shitty hardship. And it was, um, yeah, and, and, but again, it ended up sort of forming. And so I think that in, in a way, the, the, the whole, you know, hero's journey, all that shit. Um, and you're right, though, you know, it's very easy to fall into the trap of like, just positivizing everything. But it's not that it's not that our failures or the bad times are great things. It's that they're really, they're actually really painful and really gnarly and, and generative, you know? And so we just have to live in that space where it's, it's both and. and it's like, it's really gnarly and, and terrible and it's what has formed us. And um, yeah, so there's, it, it's not as much a bypass as it is an integration. I love that. I love that. So what I was really drawn to when I heard you speaking is like a lot of your commentary about the sort of new age isms, the wellness space, the modern spiritual space. You articulated a lot of things that I've been feeling the last few years as I sort of, you know, kind of switched from an artistic gaze in at the spiritual space into a participatory, participatory one. Participatory. <laughs> participatory. Um, and kind of reconciling that sort of seeing the new ageisms and the new age kind of the cult of that situation um, and making fun of it and judging it and kind of being cooler than, and then also deeply engaging in it. And so it sounds like well, from what I heard, you've had a journey with that. And I'd love to hear about that journey and how you've reconciled with being in the space of participation with like new age spirituality and at the same point also being a space of um critique and examination um all right, i'm going I'm to tell a story of two two cities um <laughs> one one is um is me being uh like a 1990s like cool kid and then the other is um is my journey sort of as a, as the son of like a new age, uh, therapist type guy and, and how that sort of like conflagrated into, um, into finally, uh, sort of an, a new me. Um, so most of my teenage and twenties, um, earnestness was the devil, uh, smiling was illegal, uh, unless I was rolling in gravel or bleeding. Um, and <laughs> certainly not on stage. There was, there was no point at which I felt comfortable being a dork, um, or being earnest. Every, all of that was about sort of naive stupidity and being well-adjusted to a, to a sick world. And I was not going to be well-adjusted to a sick Ooh, world. I love that. And, um, and then around 2000, well, okay, so 2006 is a big year for the new age world. Uh, the secret comes out. And I remember reading uh, The Secret and watching the movie. And I had already been and long been privy to, when I decided that I wanted to be a heroin addict, actually, I was driving down Laurel Canyon. I was listening to a tape of Alan Watts. Um, and I was, you know, I was 18. So I'm listening to Alan Watts at age 18, contemplating whether or not I should become a monk or a heroin addict. And I remember I was driving on the street, I'm like, fuck, which one do I do? 
And um, and of course, I ended up doing the heroin thing. But I was all I was at an early age exposed. My dad would take me to Ram Dass things, like like where you know, like Richard Alpert is actually there talking, you know. And I smelled all the Nag Champa, and I'm I'm in that world as a kid. And then and then um, and then the secret happens. And and since then, in that space between being a kid and a secret, I had become this cool guy. Where I was like, I had my armor of irony and sarcasm, and everything was sardonic and sarcastic. And um, when the secret came out, okay, you asked me earlier. This is something I almost, I don't know if I've ever shared this. Um, backing up to just before the secret, so in in two thousand, I think I got sober, and um, I had still been keeping up my sort of like spiritual practices through my drug use and whatnot. But when I got sober, it really started to flare up and I started meditating all the time. But the meditations were so powerful that I would sort of interpret them really egoistically, egotistically. And, um, and it started to interfere with my sobriety. Um, it's hard to describe, but essentially, I started to feel a lot of the weight of the world. I started to feel like, oh, when I made that decision, whether or not I was going to be a junkie or a monk, that was actually a real choice. And I should have chosen monk. And now I have to play catch up. And I started to feel this pressure and that pressure would threaten my sobriety. And I like, you know, would go and relapse and whatnot. So when I finally got sober for the last time, I X'd out all of my meditation because I didn't any longer want to interpret my fantastical meditations uh, egotistically. And I no longer wanted to feel the weight of the world. I no longer wanted to have thoughts to myself where I'm like, oh, you're like, um, you're like a little baby Jesus. You got to like go out there in the world and like help the, help the people because that, that thought was actually correcting me. So I completely stopped. 100% of my uh, spiritual practices, I became entirely sort of a mental uh, persona. And, um, and that lasted uh, up until about 2006. And it wasn't because of the secret. Um, well, actually, it was after. It was like 2008, right before starting Edward Sharp. So sorry. So when the secret came out, I was still in my mental zone. And I'm reading this and I'm, and I'm like a, an activist. I'm part of the socialist kids of America or whatever the fuck. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of, you know, anarcho communist reading and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm that guy. And, um, and I read the secret and, and, and it's, it blows my mind, the capitalist sort of like obsequiousness where it's suddenly like, okay, the law of attraction now, which I had been familiar with, is now going to be used just to get you a car, a house. It's going to buttress late capitalism. It's going to um, proliferate a kind of selfishness that relieves us 100% of responsibility for our neighbors because anything that happens to them, they've manifested themselves. There's no co-responsibility. There's no co-creation. We are now in our own totally siloed hubs of personal reality. You create your own reality. And I started becoming aware of these memes that you create your own reality meme uh, from the Seth books. Um, 
personal manifestation, personal sovereignty, uh, and the law of attraction. And um, when I started to see how, you know, uh, um, Rhonda Byrne was describing the law of attraction, how it works in reverse, the author of The Secret, and how people from that suffer mass casualty events, um, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, that they were, quote, vibrating on the same frequency as the events. They attracted the event. So you, what that did, and I could see so quickly, is that it relieved us or robbed us of our ability and our responsibility for others, to care for others, to have uh, uh, an, implica- an application for our empathy. And um, that really disturbed me. And, and starting around then, I became sort of aware of that trajectory. I, I kept notes on it. I kept my tabs. And then at the same time, I started to become very, very depressed from my starving myself of my spiritual life. Mm. But suddenly I was very aware of this new age sort of like bullshit. And I needed to reintegrate my spirituality um and what that ended up entailing um is returning to us the state of of childhood uh, pre pre cool pre irony pre sarcasm uh basically the age um five is what i arrived at and um and i just started pretending that i was a kid um I just started looking at things like, oh, light, what's light? Oh, um, it's just total bullshit, just total fakery. <laughs> but what's, in- what's interesting is that it, it, it does something fairly quickly to me. Um, there's a story I really love telling uh, where I was really depressed for a while, about six months, and I started imitating this kid as we were coming off of an airplane. Um, it just occurred to me, I'd forgotten all my tools and I see this kid and he's tapping on a railing and looking up at the sky and skipping as we're coming off this off ramp. And so that nobody can walk, nobody can see me imitating him. I start doing the same things. And by the time I was off the plane, um, the depression lifted. And that's, it's been the case for me in, in a number of um, dire moments where if I just donned the, the wonder, even in a moment of total fakery uh, of of childishness, that a I sort of get revesselized. All the contentious content, the sense of who I am, the knowledge, the certainty, the calcification of self, all of the adult sort of who are you, the de- definitions that we come to define ourselves with, um, are loosened, and in their place, sort of the universe. I I feel ends up flowing through and instead of being a rock star or this or that guy or this guy or that guy i'm just a vessel in the moment and i start to feel uh, the moment itself the the implicate order as bone would say starting to express itself through me you know the potential order the the universe of um a vibration uh choosing its way having its way with me you know and and that that's something that has now formulated into you know, a, a terse little phrase for me, which is, I don't want to master life. I want life to master me. 
Yeah, I heard you say that. I loved that so much when I heard that because I talk about that a little bit in my book. I'm like, just lay down and let life make love to you. Just yeah. submit to it. The good, yeah. the bad, the ugly, just take it in. <laughs> yeah. Like a lover you don't want to look away from, you know. Yeah, I don't want to fuck life. I want life to fuck me. I want life to fuck me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And sometimes it hurts, but it's okay. So, so what would you say to the sort of overwhelming influx of people that have eschewed the path of wonder, of not knowing, of allowing life to enter them as spiritual, as wellness, as sort of the path towards some kind of God sense and that have instead chosen the path of this is how you do it. This is how it's, this is how to get it. This is how to feel it. Yeah. Like, what would you say? Because it feels like a very clear divide to me. And sometimes I, I shake my fists at the heavens and I'm like, oh, fuck it. I'm retiring from this whole thing. Um, but I do think it's necessary for people to stand out there and go, I stand for the I don't know. I stand for the mystery. I stand for the wonder. And like, and, and, but so what would you say to that other side, which is the Rhonda Byrne, the, um, you create your own reality. Like, um, the, 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 I've, I've got a a digital course for every one of your woes, you know? So I'd say, uh, two things, one, and they're related. Um, hopefully we can all agree that we want to live in correspondence in resonance with the universe for lack of a better word. So, if we can all agree that we want to live in resonance, and of course the idea of personal manifestation and spiritual ascension, you know, pertains and applies to being um, in some sort of harmonic state uh, with the universe and with um, with your being. So if we can agree to that, then one of the next questions is, well, what is the universe? What are the fundamental operational principles of the universe? Are there any? Well, yeah, there's one and it's interrelatedness. It's interconnectivity. Okay, so if we're interrelated and we're interconnected, and of course that's how the quote law of attraction is supposed to work in the first place, which is the idea that as Rhonda Byrne said herself, resonating at the frequency of an event. Okay. So if there's correspondence of vibration and that's what actually actualizes things like the law of attraction, then the universe is listening to you. The universe is listening to you because the universe is entirely connected. Everything is connected, including and not excluding your connection to your fucking neighbor who's suffering from cancer or is poor or has just been raped, or whatever the fucking case is. So what I would say is, number one, you don't create special cases for yourself where, yes, I'm connected to the universe, but not but not, not anyone who's suffering. Anyone who's suffering, that's their thing. Somehow I've created these little nooks of exclusion so that I can live a bypass, comfy life. So I can create my own psycho space. 
Well, that's spiritual bypassing. So if that's what you want to do and you're okay with living your life as a lie, of course, you're, you're, you're totally, <laughs> you can do that. No one's going to stop you from being a total liar. But if you want to truly live in harmony, with the universe, if you want to vibrate on the frequency of the universe, then we cannot create special cases for the suffering. We cannot say that they are disinterrelated simply because we don't want to experience the pain and the burden of feeling any responsibility for the predicaments of others. So that would be number one. Number two would be, how do you feel about death? Where are you at with death? Have you done any death initiation? Have you really confronted death? Have you integrated death into your life? Or are you just trying to extend your life as far as possible? When you take supplements, when you work out, when you look in the mirror, are you trying to just, is it all about extending your own life? Because I don't know if you're aware of this, but that's how cancer cells operate. They refuse apoptosis. Apoptosis is when you have programmed cell death because death is a part of regeneration. Any healthy system requires death so that it can regenerate, sustained life. Only life is death, guaranteed death. Only life that doesn't incorporate and include death is death. Because the only way life sustains itself is from a cycle of death and rebirth. So I would say that that's part two, because to me, and I think the cancer analogy is really apropos, I really, really believe that the reason why society currently has an extractive mindset, which is exemplified in things like, you know, the way that the law of attraction is being utilized in something like The Secret, where it's all about just getting, get, get your favorite this, get the thing you want, get everything, me, 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 me. That's extract, that's an extractive mindset. And when you don't care about, you know, the operations writ large of the body, well, that's exactly how cancer behaves. Cancer is an extractive cell that just wants to self-replicate and it, refusing to die, refusing apoptosis. And so I think that those two aspects are really interrelated to use a, a, you know, an apropos phrase and, um, and, and, and at the crux of the issue that we have to integrate um death and we have to um really truly integrate uh interdependence interrelation we need a declaration a universalized declaration of interdependence um that we really uh take to heart hello quick interlude here i hope you're enjoying this podcast if you are i'd love for you to check out my book fuck like a goddess my guide to healing yourself reclaiming your voice and standing in your power Publishers Weekly called it a sharp, forceful debut. It was one of Bustle's best summer reads and a bestseller in three categories on Amazon. These are my methods that I'm teaching to inspire you, challenge you, bring up your resistance so you can face it and get free and unleash your gifts. How to let life make love to you, enjoy every bit and find the magic in all of it guide. You can find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and Sounds True, or by visiting alexandraroxo.com slash book. Thank you so much. It means the world to me to have your support for my work. Back to the podcast. 
I love that. And it, you know, I was raised Christian and it takes me right back into the heart of, you know, I don't know if they were actually Jesus's words or whatever the, you know, but that Jesus was like, you, the, a big thing I'm telling you here is just to love your neighbor as yourself, you know, and to be kind. And it's funny that this, the modern spiritual kind of um, mainstream ideology doesn't include that that kind of circular um, seeing your neighbor as yourself thing that, 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 that was at the heart of some of the Christianity. And it's sort of like you throw your, the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, okay, you forget religion, but then we forget some of these actually core values that are kind of important, like kindness and <laughs> empathy for each other. Um, because it becomes this uh, with that, you create your own reality, like me for me. And mm -hmm. it, the life is, is really catching. Like it's a lie that kind of spreads quickly. And it's a, it's an asleepness that I found myself in and then had to sort of like pour a bucket of water on my own head and go, girl, wake the fuck up. And luckily I have, you know, my sort of, um, you know, uh, CS, I lived in Seattle and Portland and I have my, my old friends who are like, girl, uh, -uh you know, came to visit me in Venice at different times when I lived in Venice in LA and we're like, no, hell no. So it's, you know, it, it's good to have people around if you do get caught in, in those type of moments where the lie catches on to you because it, it can mm -hmm. catch on. It's nice to have people to give you perspective. However, I think millions of people are still, it's a very um, seductive lie. It's the most seductive lie that has ever been told. It's, um, it does everything we want. First of all, you know, it's an interesting little, it's my version of history, but it is history. Um, when, in, in about 1600, Galileo, Copernicus, they had all figured out, but, but this time they'd actually measured and, and mathematically proved that the earth revolved around the sun, that the sun didn't revolve around the earth. It, it, we, we really graduated officially to the heliocentric model. Only 27 years later, Descartes comes up with the phrase, I think, therefore I am. Now, to me, I think, therefore I am, that cogito is a direct response to suddenly losing our universal uh, centrality. It's like, okay, all right, fine. We revolve around the sun. Guess what? I create all existence in my mind. How about that? I am God. Now, of course, people are going to be like, Descartes didn't think he was God. He used this to prove that like, God imbued us with the capacity to understand ourselves. Sure, but that began a cascade of consequences that I call the enchantment of self that continued on through the Enlightenment. And I see that I see capitalism not as an emergent economic system of economics, but rather an, an economics born of the enchantment of self. This idea of you know mutual self-interest. This idea of the rugged individual, this idea of, you know, um, going on up to Ayn Rand, the virtue of selfishness, and then you create your own reality. You create your own reality. The law of attraction is really an explanation for Descartes, I think, therefore I am. It's how I think, therefore I am works. And, um, and so I see all of this, this, this lie, um, of, 
of subjectivity just dominating. Okay, if the if the object of world is going to diminish us so much that we feel like we're just some obscure planet in a solar system, then we're going to make ourselves, our, our subjective perception, the very center of everything, creation itself. And, and I think that there's, there's so much comfort in the idea that you are God, that you create your own reality. It gives us so much agency and at the same time relieves us of the burden of responsibility for others. It is the most seductive shit on the face of the planet. Um, it's extremely catching. It's totally viral, uh, just like cancer. The idea that you're just going to live and live and live and live and live and live and extract, extract, and then it's, it's going well, it's going well. And all of a sudden, the host that you're inside of that you're living on, the earth, in our case, starts to get sick. And you're like, what the fuck's going on? Why is it getting sick? Well, it's because you're self-replicating all day, dude. It's because you're refusing to be communal. You're refusing the laws and order, not, not political laws and order, but the fundamental interconnectedness of, um, of life itself. And so the very body that you're inside of that is now dying. And... Um, and we see that, you know, we see that everywhere and there's so many examples. But yeah, I do think that the lie is, is just incredibly seductive. I also think that there are, just like anything that's seductive, there are really important truths in it. It catches us with, with truths. The subjective reality is very fascinating. And, and we are, this, each of us are physically the center of our own universe. Or, you know, each of us are the center of our own experience, I should say. And, and there are really weird things, you know, uh, epiphenomenon and the idea that maybe we're not even, you know, actually experiencing, experiencing anything. And, and, um, these are really seductive ideas as well. But I just see it as a desperation to, to safety. Mm-hmm. It's, it's basically a, def- a desperation to safety. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you mentioned Christianity. Um, in the 1800s, uh, especially evangelicals, um, but Christianity at large was really, really, really critical of capitalism. Um, all throughout the 1800s, you can find texts of um you know, the sort of ecclesiastic class of Christianity railing against capitalism and pointing out the obvious, which is like, wait a minute, the Bible, the Bible speaks against all of this, all of this, and especially the New Testament. I mean, there are, there are excerpt after excerpt, passage after passage that are like bluntly socialistic, realistic, and then bluntly anti-capitalistic. I mean, just one after another. And so you had by 1925, it was like 25% of the evangelical clergy in America were registered socialists um, because they were so against this sort of like selfish, um, not, not treating your neighbor as yourself. And what really came along and saved, began to save capitalism, I think. And no one, this is purely my theory because no one really thinks about new ageism or new thought like this but around the turn of the 19th century or the 20th century 1910 
1890, actually, like Wallace D. Waddles and the whole New Thought crew that ended up inspiring all of New Ageism started to spiritualize, uh, spiritualize selfishness. And in that spiritualization of selfishness, capitalism ended up, it, it really ended up becoming, you know, in the, in the Bible, there's always passages, like it's easier to get through the pin of a needle than, than into heaven as a rich man, um, the eye of a needle. Uh, capitalism started to really invert that, where the richer you are, the more pious you must be. The richer you are, the, must, the, the more in correspondence with God you must be. And, um, and, and new thought, especially in the law of attraction, really reified and clarified that and gave us marching orders. It was like, if you're rich, you earned it. And it became our own version of the, bless you, of the, uh, of the Hindu model of uh, the caste system. But it became a, a caste system that was operationalized within our lifetime. So, you know, if you're poor, well, you didn't necessarily earn that in a past life. You earn that right now. You earn that somehow in your, like, you know, you're a five-year-old kid, you're born into poverty, you must be vibrating some weird frequency kid. Um, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of that scene um, in the Bible, the scene I see it in my head, I've seen it in movies, but of Jesus uh, in the temple with like all of the capitalism that was happening and the selling and the buying in the space of God and him overturning the tables. And, you know, there's another scene in, in the Holy Mountain by uh, Yodorovsky where there's like at the bottom of the Holy Mountain, there's all of these different types of gurus and teachers selling all sorts of spiritual stuff. And I remember watching that, you know, when I was like 23, and then watching it happen over the last like five years and I've participated in it. I coach people, but, and I try to stay in the, the best integrity possible, which is kind of like, you know, walking on razor blades sometimes. But, um, I think of those two scenes and just wonder what the hell they would think of what's happening now, you know, like that, like, what would Jesus think about the, the wisdom being sold or the spiritual powers being sold? And, you know, I, I come back to that again and again, and with the notion of, and you don't like, do you not have to be poor in order to be pious, et cetera. And that notion of, yeah, that if you have money, that it is hard to stay on track in a way. I mean, I'm, I'm loosely interpreting that, that passage from the Bible, like that you said to be a rich man, get through the eye of a needle is easier than getting into to heaven because the, this sort of, um, the, the the slippery the the slimy of entering into that field is complex let's say and so this this notion that you mentioned which i also been just thinking about a lot of like when did it become that our spiritual powers were tantamount to our income like that to me has been such a strange mind-blowing thing to experience especially people in the coaching space and in the wellness space um sort of just accept as a truth well if you don't have and i've accepted it in moments again like took the lie drank it and then was like oh my god i feel sick um and it's how did that become acceptable and how much suffering is that causing the self and the others around? And so I'm wondering with that in mind, like, do you have any sort of imagined, visioned antidote 
to the to these lies or to these um these false truths that have been intaken that again like you said have some element of truth otherwise they probably wouldn't be so easy to intake but an antidote to this kind of space many of us have found ourselves in or to, or related to yeah um so i guess to me the antidote is uh, back to uh, the death and interrelatedness and and i guess in, in a more concrete sense um it's hard it's hard to speak on this because it's not a this is more just sort of a uh, not even a proof of concept but um i think that we need to and i've, I've been giving some thought to this but I, I need to put more more effort into it but basically in a nutshell well, we can take your rough brainstorm. Sure, we'll just, sure. for, the, for the record, this yeah. is a rough draft, work in progress, yeah. like, not for the public consumption yet, really. Uh, in a nutshell, we need to reintegrate um, and bring back the death initiation. And it doesn't have to be just for us when we're 13 years old and becoming, you know, adults. Um, we, you know, ayahuasca is a version uh, you know, uh, having a, you know, a psychedelic experience that is challenging and that makes us confront uh, death, um, you know, is aversion. But speaking of Jodorowsky, there's a, a new documentary he, um, he made called Psycho Magic. I'm not sure if you saw that. I didn't see the doc. I had the book, but I'll, okay. I'll watch it. Yeah, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the book, the book tells the story. But the, the, the documentary tells the story in a, in a, in a, in a visceral way, um, because you end up seeing the, um, the rituals that, uh, that get invented on a per person basis. And, you know, in, in some sense, those rituals are, are just, you know, they can be tailored just to healing your sense of abandonment, that, you know, when you're a kid or whatever it is, but, our loss of ritual. So I, I view I view religion um, as two things: um, ritual and tradition. And I view ritual and tradition as two different things. I view ritual as the act itself, and I view ritual as a creative event. I view tradition as the repetition of that creative event and as the compression and continuation and redundancy of past distortions, so past events, past rituals that were genuine of the moment, that were inspired, then calcify into these sort of compressions. And you have religions which then continue to compress any subsequent distortion. So let's say Jesus was a distortion. He distorted the reality field. Let's say Jesus existed and he distorted our field of reality and created this sort of new take. And then religion came in and said, okay, we're gonna use that, incorporate it, and then compress and disallow any subsequent distortions. So you have Simon of Trent in Italy in 1300 or so, um, who suddenly started threatening baby Jesus as this sort of model of, uh, you know, a new, a new saint, a new baby saint, um, fairly erroneous, um, 
conditions and 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 gnarly conditions actually in which that that kid started to become gain sainted so i'm glad that that didn't become the next little baby jesus because it was a very sort of anti-semitic um context in which he became uh, famous um but you have these compressions where you, you sort of disallow subsequent distortions and what i mean by distortions is our rituals so moments where we confront death moments where we take the liberty to um to move out of a tradition and into the unknown of ritual and into the the um the very dangerous space of um confronting our mortality confronting our demons uh confronting our shadow self and i think that that's where the jungian concept of neurosis becomes really really important and, and essentially at the end of the day i think the antidote is involves eradicating uh, confronting our shadow selves so that we can begin to unravel and bring our neuroses into the light um and those neuroses are created specifically like like and exactly by an avoidance state by avoiding our shadow work then our shadow ends up manifesting in these neuro neurotic behaviors beliefs and um and collective institutions and so i think that you know in a nutshell we've we've really got to think about institutionalizing shadow work institutionalizing um making it okay to not be okay making it safe to be unsafe creating safe spaces to explore our shadows because one of the and and the great impedance to this is status anxiety we're so we're so afraid of what other people are going to think about chinks in our armor yeah and with social media it's just made it awful i might as well just stand on a cliff and say i have a scarlet letter i've done everything that's possibly fucked up so just let me get that out there <laughs> I, um, but I, so I, I wanted to just presence you said some really beautiful things and i want to sort of sort of maybe like sort of bring them into my thighs um the 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 parts of our humanity, and, and my partner was telling me this because he he sent me this podcast of this from this the writer of this book called Reality Bubble, and she said that the only places in our modern society where we don't have cameras, right? Everywhere in our modern society, there's cameras. Uh, cameras are allowed. Are the places where our food is made and animals are killed, mm. where people die. Mm. There may be a few other things, but that. You can film babies being born. You can see pictures of them all over the internet, et cetera. But there are these places that we just accept that we don't see. We don't see the burger being killed. We don't see the body being cremated. You know, there are these, these aspects of our humanity that we're so far from. And that I think that what you're saying, and, and then this, everyone who's listening, you have to interpret this for your own, you know, kind of like narrative on a, what works for you. I'm not saying, but I said yesterday, I said, you know, I have never killed 
my food except mm -hmm. fish, you mm -hmm. know? But I, I feel like um, that ritual, talking about rituals and encountering death, I actually have gone through phases of being vegan, vegetarian, nah, 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 raw, whatever. But I feel like more and more, oh, it feels out of integrity to not have faced the their initiation of killing something that I eat. Um, I think that that's one place that maybe in some, in some uh, you know, future, like actually is actionable for us to do yeah. or encountering death even in nature and following the process of death even in nature not trying to pretend that we're in this endless summer be it our youth the way we look our radiance you know be it our work schedule and operating always at the height of summer like there's so much that's uh that when we when we sort of ignore the cyclical of of nature the seasons life death rebirth it's just it's a it's a microcosm and it's just like it's it's so interrelated and in how capitalism has sort of broken that such beautiful sacred delightful uh link between us and our own death i mean as a woman i bleed every month so i go through this mm -hmm. crazy weird thing every month and thank god because that's given me um a whole other experience of living and I think that some women probably ignore that and don't like that. I have as well at times. Going through plant medicine ceremony, something I've been doing for many years, and I know a lot of people are really drawn to that right now because I think people are drawn to that visceral experience of kind of being broken mm -hmm. and having things shift for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just I want to bring it into some sense of practical for people because I love your philosophy philosophical, like beautiful, deep intellectual overview. And I think for maybe people who, who are listening or read, read my book, it's like, we're not saying necessarily like throw it all out, but there is this sense of that there's something that's missing and that's why it's made us so, so easily, so easy to intake the lie. So easy to just buy into it all, right? Because something is missing in our human experience. Right. And the more we get sort of stuck into the phone and our consciousness, attention, awareness, being, status, identity into the phone, the more that we actually create distance from that really visceral interaction, which with that which is real, which also could mean like going out and volunteering. You know, I, I worked in the emergency room as a teenager because I wanted to experience what mm -hmm. it was like to be around people that were going through um, and that. And I wanted to, to try to get a scholarship to college to NYU mm -hmm. because I, <laughs> I came from a family that didn't have the money, but to be in a situation where you're putting your own self aside and you're experiencing suffering. I think people that go to India experience that for the first time you see suffering, you feel it and you feel it in your body, you may feel nauseous, etc. I think that these experiences need to happen frequently, not saying go to India and have an ayahuasca ceremony all the time or work in an emergency room all the time. But finding a regular way to be in contact with the cycles and the suffering and not push it out. And this is very delicate. It's not it's 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 its own path for everybody. I've been treading it for many years, and there's times where it takes me down completely, like you said, where you feel the weight of the world and you just feel hopeless. And then there's times where you just can't take it in. So I, I don't have the, the solution whatsoever, but I really appreciate with what you're saying, which is the avoidance of it has become, um, 
has become just acceptable, you know, the avoidance of the death of the suffering. And um, especially in this era, it's been strange to be in the middle of a pandemic and not see people actually dying, not have access to the death that's supposedly happening. It's felt like the biggest kind of gaslighting from the, you know, the, the, the collective parents or whatever, uh, uh, to not experience the grieving of the bodies and, and the burials and, and, um, to have it sort of all digitized in a way. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, this reminds me of, um, there's so much, but this reminds me of new Orleans. Um, and, and one concrete, you know, example of death integration, um, is basically the city of new Orleans, but we, you come here as a visitor, you see music in the street, you see parades of music going down the street and brass bands playing people dancing as they're going, you don't realize necessarily if you're just visiting that the reason that we do that, the reason the second line was born is because the first line is the grief parade. It's the burial parade. It's the procession of, um, of mourning. The second line, that's the first line. The second line is the band backing it up. So you have the grief and the celebration and the grief and the celebration and the grief and the celebration. And that's the legacy of the second lines. And to me, that's why, for instance, New Orleans feels so like it's darkness feels warm. It's the only city mm -hmm. that I've been where like, it's darkness feels warm. And, and that's because there's an integration of death here. Also, New Orleans is about to slide off the fucking uh, globe um, and into the water. So there's also, there's also that we're like below sea level, but there's, there's a celebration that we can bring in so that it doesn't necessarily have to always be, um, you know, this hard thing, but rather the celebration of life is the celebration of the death, is the celebration of the life, the regeneration is the celebration and is the cause for celebration. I have a song called Life is Hard that goes, "Life, uh, come celebrate, life is hard. We have to celebrate this stuff. And it's my primary cause for celebration um, is when shit is hard. So when my daughter asked me what I, you know, um, you know, and, and it's, it's such a, it sounds like a privileged thing to say, is it like, you know, that this stuff might be cause for celebration, but if you look around the world at the most degraded, yes. blighted places, yes. the most joyous, jubilant music yes. comes out of those places. Yes. I always talk about this. I'm just like, dude, if you've never traveled and been in countries where people don't have anything, but they share it with you. And it's like, okay, here we are in America. Like, this is where, where you were born. I guess I was born here. Um, yeah, there's, it's, it's so true. And to find, I mean, I was driving back from the Bay to down to LA and, and I was driving on, I saw on the side of the road, you know, like the, that they put like a little monument for sometimes if someone's had an accident, right? Like some flowers and whatever. And I saw a, a family playing there, a picnic. They had laid out a picnic. The kids were throwing a ball right in front of this, you know, memorial to someone who had died in a car accident there. And they, they look like a Latin American family. And my heart was just like, fuck, we don't, 
like we missed out on that. Like that whole, like there's that has such depth and life that's soul giving, you know, those moments, like seeing that, experiencing that. Um, and, you know, it's so many conversations and there's so much there. I am deeply invested in this, in this kind of conversation for myself, growing up in a very kind of Christian and new agey space and then kind of hating it all and then coming back around to it and, you know, and then making it a part of my job. So I'm really invested in, in finding some stable ground here for myself and for, for people who, who tune into this podcast or read my book or whatever that, you know, you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You don't have to say fuck spirituality, fuck new age, fuck wellness. Um, there's so much beauty, beauty there. And there's a level of accountability and maturation that's, that, that's being asked of us. And so I'm so grateful to hear the conversation that you had on the Rebel Wisdom podcast and some other great conversations out there right now. Most of them I heard from men and I thought, well, geez, I've been thinking about this for a few years now and um, I really want to have a conversation. So thank you for being open to to engage with me in this dialogue because I do feel like it's very important and to extend it to all the women and all the women that maybe intake my work. I think that, that there will be a lot of little seeds um, planted and sparks lit in people's hearts and, and, and just in the inner contemplation, there's no shaming here. Like that's not what I'm intending. And I don't think that that's what you're intending, but there is, um, a greater responsibility. And, and, and that to me is interesting. And the maturation is interesting and the deepening is interesting. So thank you so much. Um, my partner's blasting music, which means lunch is ready. ready. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Cool. So great to have you. Yeah. Likewise, and thanks so much for this comment. We'll talk uh, again at some point in the future, and good luck to you out there. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. For more, 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 follow me on IG at Alexandra Roxo, and you can get on my mailing list where I send poems, practices, rituals, links to upcoming retreats and events, and all kinds of goodies. And if this podcast has touched your heart, please let us know. Please write us a review, give us a five-star rating, all that. It means a lot to myself and everyone involved. Big, big love, my darling. Have a fabulous day and see you again very soon.